0: Who you think you are goes a long way toward determining who you eventually will be. Who you think you are goes a long, long way toward determining who you will eventually be. We don't actually like that statement, for the most part as Americans. We don't we don't like that, that truism, living as we do in, in our democratic meritocracy. We like to think that that anyone can grow up to be president, that anyone can grow up to be the next Steve Jobs. And of course, in one sense, technically that that's true. Anyone can grow up to be president or the next Steve Jobs. But in reality, we all know there's more to it than that, don't we? If if you don't think that you are presidential material, then you probably won't be. If you don't think you have the ability to create new things, then chances are you won't. Self-conscious identity matters. Not just for our present self-esteem. But for our future potential. A slave who doesn't even know he's a slave is unlikely to ever long for freedom. He doesn't know he needs to. We, we, we know, sadly, the, the, the truth of, of battered wife syndrome. A, a battered wife who, who doesn't realize she's battered will never leave her husband. You can think about this historically. If, if many of you have seen the, the movie Lincoln here recently, well, I mean, just think about this. If Lincoln had not personally identified with the union and the need for its preservation, then, as president, he he might very well have just decided not to fight for it. in Marxist thought, a proletariat who doesn't know that it's the proletariat will never rise up in revolution. This is what's meant by by the phrase "class consciousness" in Marxist thought that the need to to actually realize who you really are. And therefore, understand where your future interest really lies. This winter, we're looking at the liberation theology of the Exodus narrative, the the liberation of Israel from Egypt and and what that means for us today. And, And one of the things we've got to realize right here at the start is before any liberation can happen, Class consciousness, uh, an an awareness of your own identity, an awareness that liberation is both needed and possible, must occur. And nowhere is that more important, that that awareness of identity, than in the person of the liberator. So as we come to Exodus chapter 2, in the book of Exodus we are actually introduced to the main actor in the book of Exodus that we haven't met yet. Moses. This is the chapter he shows up in. And the central question of this chapter is the question that Moses himself asks really repeatedly. It's a question of identity. Who is Moses? And, of course, for us, the question, what does his identity mean? for our own liberation, our own liberation from sin. So turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter two. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, that's found on page 89, right towards the beginning of the Bible, page 89, Exodus chapter two. Now, this chapter is one of the most famous chapters in the Bible. I mean, if you grew up in the church, I mean, this chapter is always in all of the children's Bible stories, you learn songs about it. But what I want to suggest this morning is that rather than being all about a dramatic and and kind of romantic rescue of a baby, Exodus chapter 2 is about Moses coming to grips with who he is. The chapter actually covers about 80 years of Moses' life. It's divided into three separate scenes or or kind of vignettes of, of his life, each one developing the answer to the question, who is Moses? And what we see in scene one is that Moses is a royal son. If you're taking notes, that's point one. Moses is a royal son. Look in verse one of chapter two. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And The girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Chapter two opens in the middle of that genocidal program that we saw Pharaoh put in place Last week. And it opens with the birth of a little Levite baby boy. We're, we're not told the name of his parents. We'll, we'll, we'll learn that later. For now, we're simply told that, that when his mother saw him. She saw that he was a fine child. And so she decided to, to hide him for three months. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know if you've been reading this all week like I have. But I I think. As you read verses 1 and 2, if, if you're at all a sensitive reader, you, you, you're immediately wondering, what kind of mother is this? She saw that he was a fine child, so she decided to hide him? What, if she had seen that he was an ugly child, she would have handed him to the Egyptians and said, throw him into the river? No, 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 not at all. I mean, every, every mother thinks her child is fine. Every, every mother thinks her child is, is beautiful. Now, the phrase that's used here, she saw that he was a fine child. The phrase that's used here is almost a direct quotation from the repeated refrain in Genesis chapter one. And God saw that it was good. Literally, Moses' mother saw her son. That he was good. And right away, we are alerted that all of those themes of creation from Genesis 1 that we saw introduced in Exodus chapter 1 last week are, are still right here with us. Only now they are focusing in on the birth of a little boy. When he was born, we don't know what the mother saw, but what she saw was that he was good. That's not the only connection back Back to Genesis. From from the beginning, this child's survival is is under threat. And so so we see after after hiding him, his mother makes a a basket of reeds or gets a basket of reeds, puts him in it, and floats him along the the bank of the Nile River uh, uh, among the reeds, the the very waters that are meant to destroy him. Now, again, if you're a sensitive reader, I I, I don't know about you, but if I'm trying to save my little baby boy, my three-month-old, from being drowned in the river, this is not the first plan that comes to mind. I mean, what if there's a leak? Right? Three-month-olds 3, three month olds don't swim. What about the crocodiles? I mean, did anybody think about the crocodiles this week as you're reading this? Well, once again, I, the key to understanding what's going on here is, is not necessarily exactly whether or not this would have been your first plan or not. The key to understand uh, is, is a connection back to Genesis. The word... That that, that that our Bibles translate basket actually isn't basket. The word is ark. And this is the only other time in the entire Old Testament that the word ark is used. Other than the, the account of Noah's ark. Back in Genesis 6, 7, 8. And you know i think just to make sure we don't we don't miss the connection this this mother this nameless mother takes her little ark and coats it with pitch just like noah did see i th- i think the connection couldn't be more clear just as we were thinking about last week with these themes of creation and new creation god is creating a people for himself. And their creation is all tied up with this little child. Uh, Like creation itself, his birth is good. It, It is according to God's purposes. It is just as he wanted. And like Noah, this little baby boy is carried by an ark Through the waters of judgment in order to do what? Well, as we see, as we're going to see, in order to start a new people, a a new humanity, if you will, the, the people of God, this pattern of creation and new creation is beginning to come to a climax right here in chapter two. But we're not at the absolute climax yet. You just keep this theme in mind for when we get to Exodus chapter 14. Now, we don't know exactly what Moses' mother was thinking. Oh, but I think we can imagine how she was feeling. And if you're a parent here this morning, you'll have to pardon me, because I think these are feelings that I feel very closely at the moment. These feelings for your child, whom you love, but whom you know you cannot finally save. Oh, surely this is what this mother was, was thinking. It, she, she did what, what she could do, didn't she? she? She did all that she could do. She hid him. She made an ark for him. She floated it on the river. But in the end, she could not save him. In the end... She had to trust him to the care, the providential care of the Lord. This is what the book of Hebrews tells us that Moses' parents did. The book of Hebrews tells us that, that they acted in faith in doing this. That, that doesn't mean that they were passive. We see that, that she did a lot. But at the end of the day, she simply had to trust entrust her child to God and to his care. Parents, do do you feel that? Do you feel the weight of that? We cannot save our children. Oh, there is much that we can do. There is much that we should do. We should be teaching them about the Lord. We should be teaching them about their need for a savior. We should be modeling that in our lives and constantly pointing them to Christ. We should be praying for them. We should be protecting them to the extent that we can. But parents, at the end of the day, we cannot save our children. The Lord must do that. If they are to be saved. So some of you are sitting here this morning as parents and, you know, the great joy of your children coming to know Christ at an early age and, and they've, they've grown up in the gospel and they appear to be thriving in the gospel. Maybe maybe they're adults now and and they're following Christ still and and they're raising their own children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Parent, praise God for that in your child. But don't, don't ever, ever, ever for a moment think that it happened because of your good parenting. Oh, God, surely used your good parenting. But in the end, it was God who saved your child. There are other parents sitting here this morning, and that's not the story for their children. Their children have not yet confessed Christ. Maybe they're even adults now. And it it is evident that their lives are far, far from Christ. Parent. You too must trust God with your child. Do not ever think for a moment that it was your bad parenting that kept them from the Lord. No, parents, you may not have been a great parent. I know certainly there are many days that I'm not and my children let me know. But if our children are not saved, it is because they have chosen to rebel against the Lord, not because we were bad parents. And for them, too, it is the Lord who must intervene. It is the Lord who must save them. So do not give up. Do not stop praying. Do not stop pointing your child to Christ, no matter how old that child is, even an adult child. Continue to hold them out to the Lord. And trust him to have mercy on your child. Call on him to do that. And trust that the Lord of all the earth will do what is right. Like I said, we don't know exactly ...what Moses' mother was thinking. But I think as the narrative moves on... ...it's very clear what God was thinking. Even as he works out his plan here... ...to create a people for himself... ...we see, just as it it began last week... in, ...in that reply of the midwives... ...we see the Lord mocking... ...the serpent king... ...who wants to destroy God's people... I mean, look what happens there in verse five, a group of women come down to the river to bathe. This isn't a pool party. It's it's bath time. And while they're bathing, the ark, this little ark is discovered. And and, and observe the, the providence of God here. It, it, if the, if the ark had been in an area maybe where, where the male members of Pharaoh's household came down to the river to bathe, if, if a man had found that ark, I think, I think baby Moses would have been tossed. But That's not where the ark was placed. It was placed just in the spot where, where a woman would find this ark. And, and as the text tells us, all of her God-given maternal instincts were aroused. She felt sorry for this little baby. But but it's not just any woman who finds him, is it? It's Pharaoh's daughter. Can you hear the divine mockery? Pharaoh wanted all the Hebrew boys killed. Because he feared the Israelite. But in the end, it is Pharaoh's own daughter who rescues the Hebrew boy who would eventually rescue all the rest of the Israelites. If that's not irony, I don't know what is. But it, it goes on from there. Not only does she rescue him, she shelters him with Pharaoh's power and, and with Pharaoh's money. Pharaoh will now buy the food that Moses eats. Pharaoh will now provide the house that Moses lives in. Pharaoh will pay for and provide the education that Moses receives. Pharaoh is even going to unwittingly pay the boy's own mother to nurse and nurture him until he's old enough to come and live in Pharaoh's own palace. Friends, God will not be mocked. He will not be mocked. Instead, it is God Who mocks every proud heart that sets itself up in opposition to him. If if you're here this morning and and, and you're not a believer, you you need to understand who to identify with in this story. This is true for Christians as well. Uh, We we basically aren't meant to identify with Moses. Moses isn't isn't us in the story. No, particularly if we are outside of Christ, we we're, we're identifying with Pharaoh at this point. That, that, that's our true state outside of Christ, people who have set ourselves up in opposition to God. Friends, take the warning that is given here. God will not be mocked. In our rebellion, in our specific rebellion, in the very nature of our rebellion, Will be the seeds of our own judgment and downfall. A man will reap what he sows. This warning is here so that we might not remain in our proud mockery of God, but that we would humble ourselves and turn to Him. Where all of this is leading, of course, is, is verse 10. When we finally learn the little boy's name, he hasn't been named up to this point. His name is Moses, a name given to him not not by his birth mother, but by Pharaoh's daughter, because in fact he has become her son, a royal son, with all the privileges and all the power. That comes with that kind of identity. That's who Moses is. A royal son. And that fundamental identity sets up scene two. Because Moses is not simply a royal son. He's a royal son who voluntarily identifies with his people. So if you're taking notes, this is point two. He voluntarily identifies with his people. Look at verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, glancing this way and that and seeing no one. He killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong. Why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. In Acts chapter seven, Stephen tells us that Moses is 40 years old as verse 11 opens. <clears throat> he's lived a life of privilege. He's lived, he's lived a life of power in the royal court. Stephen tells us, in fact, that, that he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians was powerful in speech and in action among the Egyptians. But for all that privilege and power, something has happened to Moses in verse eleven. Something has happened inside of him. We we actually don't know how it happened. We don't know exactly when it happened. We just know right here that it has happened. He is identifying not with the Egyptians, but with the downtrodden, enslaved Hebrews. Twice in those first two verses uh, he he refers to them not not as the hebrews but as his own people as his fellow people it's it's a classic picture of an awakening of class consciousness now what does that do in him as as he now identifies with his people well well it leads him to strike down an egyptian who's beating a fellow israelite it's an act of judgment And an act of rescue all at the same time. The Egyptian shouldn't have been doing what he was doing. So Moses judged him. This this Israelite is getting the life beat out of him. and, And Moses is rescuing him. Salvation through judgment. You remember that phrase. It's going to come up again and again in this book. But in this particular instance. It was wrong. It was wrong. For all of Moses' righteous indignation, Moses himself even knew this. Why, why else would he hide the body in the sand? Why else would he be afraid a little bit later when the, when the other uh, Hebrew brings it to his attention? But one of the things that I want you to notice, even in this text right here, and this is true oftentimes for the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. We come along a passage and we are really interested in particular ethical questions, Moral considerations, but but interestingly enough in in our text, while it doesn't commend Moses for what he did, it, it doesn't say murders. okay. It's not really the question that the text is interested in, that this this ethical condemnation of Moses that that we're interested in is not what what Exodus chapter two is thinking about. It's not what the New Testament is thinking about when it looks back on this passage. Again, thinking of Stephen's speech in, in Acts chapter seven, verse twenty-five, Stephen tells us that Moses did this because he understood that God was using him to rescue His people. We don't have to go to Acts seven to understand that. It's actually right here in Exodus chapter two. The the, the verb that, if you're using the NIV, gets translated "kill." It is actually a very specific word. It's a a word that means strike. And it is the word, the precise word that is going to be used repeatedly throughout the plague narratives that we're going to get to in a little bit. Of what God does to Egypt. God will strike the Nile. God will strike the ground. God will strike the crops and the animals. And finally, in the last plague, as we will see, God will strike the firstborn of Egypt all in order to deliver Israel. Salvation will come through judgment. The the point, I think, ultimately is brought home in that in that interchange with with the two Israelites The next day, Moses intervenes again. Once again, it's an act of judgment on Moses' part in order to bring about a rescue. But this time, the the, the one in the wrong, the, the criminal, literally, calls his bluff and says, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? Now, the irony in that question is thick. Because, of course, that is exactly what Moses is going to become. Ruler and judge over all Israel. And who's going to make him that? God is. God will appoint him ruler and judge. But not yet. Not yet. There's a lesson here for us, I think. Again, we're not really meant primarily to identify with Moses. But what's going on here with Moses, I think, speaks powerfully our own lives. So often we like Moses walk around through our life and and we see injustice or, or we experience injustice ourselves. And so what do we do? Well, we we pull a Moses, right? We appoint ourselves ruler and judge. We we appoint ourselves judge and jury. And in our anger, in our words, in our actions, we seek to exact judgment. But, friends, we cannot appoint ourselves. The book of Romans tells us to leave room for the judgment of God. Self appointed saviors save no one, self appointed judges cannot. Enact justice. But our hope as Christians is not, therefore, that that there never will be justice, that there, there never will be salvation. No, as Paul says in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Friends, Jesus Christ is that ruler and judge that God has appointed. So, Christian, put aside your anger. Take off your judicial robes. They do not fit you well. And wait for Christ. You will not be disappointed in his justice. Now, it is Moses' identification with Israel that leads us then to scene three. Who is Moses? He's a royal son who voluntarily identified with his people. And third, suffers their rejection. He suffers their rejection. Look in verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ask this, he asked his daughters, why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become an alien in a foreign land. What was Moses thinking when he killed that Egyptian. That, that, that killing a single slave master was going to deliver Israel. Uh, the, the results are, are, are really clear. Not only did the Israelites not appreciate it, because it's just going to cause trouble for them later, right? The slave master, he's going to come up missing. And, and who's going to get blamed? Who, who's going to catch it? But, but of course, Pharaoh didn't appreciate it either. The text tells us that, that he actually personally... Tried to kill Moses. He, he didn't send his henchmen after them, but but he personally tried to slay Moses. And and honestly, I, I you can almost understand that. I don't want to justify, it, but you can understand it. Understand that 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 even Pharaoh has feelings. And and Pharaoh at that moment is is looking at Moses, this this boy he raised, this boy he fed, this this boy he clothed with all of the privileges and opportunities of his own household. Pharaoh is feeling massively betrayed at this point. And so. Long before Israel. Leaves Egypt. Moses has his own personal exodus. He flees to Midian. Midian is not so much a place, but but a people. A group of nomads who lived in the Sinai Peninsula, who lived in Saudi Arabia, who lived uh, as far as over in maybe southern Iraq. And this makes sense. I mean, if your goal is to get lost and not be found, nomads are a great group of people to hang out with. And so our story of of Moses, who is Moses kind of comes to an end, or at least it seems to, it seems to end with Moses sitting down by a well where, where he rescues some shepherdesses from abuse, waters their flocks meets their father, ends up marrying one of them, and, and has a son. It's kind of a bleak ending to the story of Moses' life. I mean, honestly, we're kind of ready for the comic relief of Ruel, right? Girls, girls, what were you thinking? Where, where is this knight in shining armor? How, why, why did you leave him at the well? But, but the comic relief of Ruel is not really the main note of this passage. The main note of this passage is is Moses' own personal sense of identity, and you get it in the name that he gives his son, Gershom. A play on words that sounds like, I'm an alien. Do you think Moses feels his rejection? Do you you think Moses is, 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 is maybe even stewing a little bit? In in his exile? in, in, In the fact that his people did not recognize him? I think he's thinking about it all the time. Every morning when he greets his son. Good morning. I'm an alien. Good morning. I'm homeless. Good morning. My people rejected me. What's going on with this sad, kind of bleak ending here? Is the story ending with, with Moses in despair? Well, I, I think Moses is deeply discouraged at this point. Uh, maybe he's even depressed. But the story is not ending there, not, not, not at all. And when we read Exodus, as I've been suggesting, we need to read it as, as book two in a five-part work. As when we read it as the sequel to Genesis, as it's meant to be read, that becomes really clear when we read these verses. Reading the story of Moses at the well should have brought on you, if if you had just finished reading Genesis, a strong sense of deja vu. Like, Like you've read this before. Moses isn't the first person in flight from a family member trying to kill him. Moses is not the first one in in a personal exodus in in a foreign land who, who then comes to a well, rescues a shepherd girl and ends up marrying her. You see, Moses' life is being providentially ordered by God so that it reminds us of someone who came before. Jacob. Who was in full flight from murderous Esau. Who who came to a foreign land and and there rescued a a shepherd girl. Named Rachel. And married her. Not not every detail is the same. Don't, Don't get me wrong. Don't go back and, and, and read the story back in Genesis and, and notice all the details that are not the same and say the pastor's just making it up. That's not the point. The, the point is that there is so much clear providential overlap that we are meant to remember Jacob and to now begin to understand Moses in light of Jacob. The God of history is using the pattern of history. To let us know that he is not done with Moses, even if Moses thinks he's all washed up. Any more than he was done with Jacob, though, Jacob thought he was all washed up. We're being alerted here that God is going to use Moses really as a second Jacob. Jacob, the the shepherd pointing forward to Moses, the shepherd who will one day soon be the shepherd of God's flock, Israel. Jacob, the father of the twelve tribes, who leads them down into Egypt, pointing forward to Moses. In the very real sense, the last of the patriarchs. Leading the twelve tribes out of Egypt. What we're supposed to see here. Is that the rejection of Moses by his people, his own exodus into the wilderness is very much part of God's plan. If he is going to deliver God's people. If he is going to be used of God, then like Jacob. He's got a lot of wrestling with God to do first. It's not going to be on Moses' terms. It's not going to be according to Moses' plan. It's not going to be in his own strength that the royal son rescues his people. And it won't be because they recognize him and want him to be their savior. Because, of course, in that way of the story working itself out, all the glory goes to Moses. No, it will be in God's timing. It will be according to God's plan. It will be in God's strength. Like Jacob, there is a humility and a dependence upon God that Moses must be brought to. If he is going to have a future. As God's appointed deliverer. Said it before, I don't think finally we're supposed to identify with Moses, but there is an important lesson here for us, friend. If you want to be used of God. If it is your desire to be used of God, to be a blessing to others, then understand this. It is in humility and dependence that God delights in using his servants. Not in our strength. Not in our wisdom. Not in our confidence. Make no mistake. Deliverer is exactly who Moses is. I said there are only three scenes here, three vignettes on his identity. But it's in verses 23 to 25, which which leaves Moses and now gives us the big picture that we that we really get God's answer to the question, who is Moses? So point four. Moses is the fulfillment of God's promise. His promise of salvation for Israel. Look in verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Chapter two begins with Pharaoh wanting all the Hebrew baby boys dead. Chapter two turns with Pharaoh wanting Moses dead. But chapter two ends with Pharaoh dead. By the time chapter three opens, Moses is going to be 80 years old. During all those years, the suffering of Israel just grows It grows to the point that they began to call out to God for deliverance. And not only does God hear, God remembers. That's the word used there. He remembers his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. What's a covenant? It's a promise. He remembers the promise that he made centuries before to Abraham. A promise that though Abraham's descendants would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. God would punish the nation they served as slaves. And afterward, Israel would come out of Egypt with great possessions. Moses is stewing in the wilderness. Moses is out there learning his lessons of of humility and dependence. But God is remembering his promise. God is concerned for his people. And it will be when Moses is finally ready. The time to do something about it. A son had been born. A a royal son who identified with his people and though rejected by them, had been appointed by God to be their ruler and their judge, their deliverer, their savior. And so keep God's promise to God's glory. That's the note we're left on at the end of chapter two. The rest of Exodus is going to tell us how it gets fulfilled. But what I want to to leave us here with this morning is is what I hope that you've noticed, that, that there's actually far more going on in this chapter than the life of Moses. Long before God promised Abraham anything, God made a promise to Adam. God made a promise to Adam that one day a son would be born who would crush the serpent's head. The enemy of God's people, Satan himself. Friends, ultimately, that son was not Moses. But a greater son to whom Moses points like Moses, he would be a royal son, the the, the son of David. But also the son of God. Uh, Like Moses, he would be a son who did not rest on his royal privilege, but identified with his people in their slavery. Friends, in his incarnation, Jesus Christ took on our flesh and identified with us fully in our weakness, in our humanity. And at his baptism, Jesus took it one step further and identified with us in our sin, even though he had none himself. Like Moses, Jesus was rejected by his own people. Like Moses, Jesus would suffer his own personal exodus. As John's gospel puts it, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. What did they do? Well, instead they rejected him. And with the help of the Romans, they nailed him to the cross, an event that Jesus described as his own exodus. And friends, all of this happened. Because it was planned from the beginning. It was prophesied and and patterned in the history of the patriarchs, in the history of Moses, in the history of Israel. So that when it finally happened, we would recognize what was going on. We would recognize in Jesus the answer to the promise of Genesis 315 made to Adam that a son had been born. Moses would one day. We'll see. Moses is going to crush Pharaoh, the serpent king. But it would be Jesus. Who crushes the head of the serpent himself. And he does it on the cross, triumphing over Satan through his death and through his resurrection. Friends, Exodus 2 is all about the good news of the gospel. It is not ancient history, it is intensely relevant to you and I today. On the cross, the royal son of God identified with sinners. And he didn't do it, you know, on a whim or on a lark or by his own decision. He did it at God's appointment, according to God's plan. And there he died our death. But friends, death could not hold him. And so in his resurrection, he secured life, life for everyone who, who repents of their sins and puts their faith in him, accepting him as ruler and judge of their lives. One of the early church fathers described it this way. A guy named Anselm. He said, that which is not assumed cannot be healed. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and, and you find it just crazy that God would become a man. Maybe, maybe you, you, you take offense at that idea. Or maybe, maybe you hear Christians talk about God becoming man. And you go, that, that just proves that Christianity is mythology. Because that's what myths say. Friends, it's not true. Do not take offense at the idea that God would become man. Understand who you are in this story. Understand your identity as a sinner deserving of God's judgment. And so then understand that there is no other way for you to be rescued from that Judgment. Jesus had to be made like us, accepting sin so that in every way he could identify with us, in every way, take our place and so become a suitable savior for you. If you will identify with him. Through repentance and faith. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel, and it calls us today. If you have not identified with Christ today, let me urge you to wait no longer. I'd love to talk to you more about that at the door. Or I'd encourage you to talk with the person that you came. What would it mean to identify with the Savior of the world who has already identified with you? The Christian where I want to leave you. This question of Exodus 2, who is Moses? I want to leave you really in the same place, understanding that it's not finally who is Moses. It's who is Jesus? And what does that mean for you that, that he came as a second Moses, a, a greater Moses? That, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise? Think about it for a minute, Christian. Who is Jesus? As we read through this chapter, he is the royal son who alone delivers us from Satan's kingdom. He is, if you will have it, the ark who carries us through the waters of judgment to life. He is the suffering servant whose rejection means our acceptance. He is the good shepherd. Who cares for his sheep and leads us home but what you need to see is that he is all of that because he is first Emmanuel, God with us. Christian, maybe you're, you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling condemned in your sin. You're, you're feeling d- discouraged in your weakness. You, you, you're, you're feeling a long, long way away from God, perhaps. Let this truth sink in. Jesus has identified with you. He left his royal throne for you. He suffered your rejection for you. He has taken on your plight. He has looked on your life and been concerned for you. He has taken on your troubles. He has taken on your sorrows. He has taken on your failings. He has taken on your sins. Yours. He has fully identified with you. And he has made you his concern. So, Christian, do not judge your life by appearances. Do not judge your life by what you're going through right now, your trials, your struggles. Do not judge your life by the sin that yet remains in you. Certainly do not judge your life by the identity that this world puts on you or the identity that you have assumed from this world. Jesus Christ. Christian, Jesus Christ has identified with you, and identity matters. Not your identity, but his, his identity that he's given to you. And not just to you, but to us, the people of God. Hinson Baptist Church, what more do we need? We sang earlier, all I have is Christ. What more do we need? For what God is like our God? Who shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Oh, Henson, let us find our identity in Christ because He is already identified with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We are those people who constantly seek our identity everywhere but where we should. Neglecting the one who has identified already with us. Father, we pray that you give us eyes to see who Jesus really is. We pray that we would understand who we really are. And so how much we need him. And then we pray that you would give us the grace to live. In the identity of the one who died and rose again for those who believe in him. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.